if money is deflationary, won't everybody just hoard it forever and never spend it? And won't that won't that cause poverty? Won't it cause economic collapse? Doesn't it destroy the very value of money itself? This almost sounds like a reasonable question, especially if you don't think through it at all, but just accept it as is and then try to wonder why that won't happen. I mean, I used to believe it before I really thought about it. But the truth is, this idea is actually complete nonsense. And it's largely based on conflating multiple unrelated things to the increasing value of money. So, it seems like time for a Guy's Take episode. Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible, everybody. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is where you get your honorary PhD in all things Bitcoin related. Taught to you by myself and the hundreds of the most brilliant, thought-provoking, and convicted Bitcoiners in interviews, and obviously the many articles, essays, papers, Got a great read coming at you tomorrow, The Theological Conquest of Money by Eric Kaysen. Uh, So do not miss that one. Don't forget to subscribe. It's a really cool kind of philosophical piece on the, the on political ideology kind of as a, as a concept. Um, but quick thanks to uh, my hardware wallet of choice, our sponsor, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2. GuySwan.com slash BitBox will take you straight to their site. Always, people, always buy from the manufacturer so you don't get scammed. Buying secondhand or off a retailer is a prime way, and I had somebody recently that I had to advise to just throw away one that they got off of Amazon because it had definitely been opened. Plus, if you get it directly from Shift Crypto and use coupon code GUY, G-U-Y, you get 5% off. So not only is it actually the only safe way to buy, but you also get a discount. Again, guyswan.com slash bitbox will take you straight there so you can check it out. And then, of course, our other sponsor, Swan Bitcoin, is how you stack your Bitcoin for your bitbox. I've been stacking like a fiend lately, and literally all of it is through Swan now. Um, you auto-buy. It auto-withdraws to my BitBox or other hardware wallets, my multi-sig, and you set it once and it just runs. And I get to smash by the dip. Literally, it's everything you need. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy gets you $10 free. Okay, so I want to get back into my little guys take series that I've been doing recently, and I'm trying to hit a lot of the core ideas. I want to get a, a handful, like like eight or nine guys take episodes that cover the major hurdles that I think people have for over the years people have had in crossing, crossing those hurdles to really understand Bitcoin. Or maybe, maybe the best thing is to get them to figure out how to understand our current, how our current money works and where so many of the common fallacies are, and to understand those. And when you do, essentially Bitcoin becomes more obvious. And the, the more I feel like you understand it, and the more you dig into it, the more it becomes clear that Bitcoin is actually an imperative. 
for a brighter and more prosperous future. And there is one idea. There is this idea. I've touched on it probably a hundred different ways in a hundred different episodes on this show, but it is almost always indirectly. And I feel like it's time to bring all of that together, or as much as I can remember of it, for one show. Doesn't it just mean if money goes up in value, doesn't that mean people will hoard money forever, the economy will stagnate, there will be no investment, the poor won't be able to get money and thus will starve, there will be no growth, hoarding is everywhere, hurricanes and wildfires will get worse, the stock market goes to zero, oh my god, it's the end of the world. If we don't have inflation, literally everything will implode. And I heard it framed recently too that, literally, which I thought this was, I mean, I guess it makes sense from that perspective, but it's so hard to see it from that direction again. Because this just sounded crazy to me, but, but that the value of Bitcoin as a money is zero if people just want to hoard it, if people don't want to spend it. Um, and that, that, that means it's a valueless money. And I could not help that. That, that one just that one hurt me pretty hard because it's literally a declaration that for people to want to buy something, for there to be very high demand, and then also a low supply because people are not selling it, that somehow that means it has less value. And there is nothing more axiomatically, economically, perfectly wrong. Just, just flat wrong. If you have high demand for something and few people selling it, that means it's incredibly valuable. That is the only way. Those are the only two things. Economically speaking, those are the two things that make things go up in price. Period. That's it. People aren't selling it. People demand it. Every possible scenario, liquidity crisis, shift in alternatives, all of it will just mean one of the other of those two things if the value of it goes up. Either there is less of it for sale or people are demanding more of it. Luckily, that's not how most people, I think, consider this idea. That's not how I thought about it, you know, back in the day when I was just kind of your generic default Keynesian, as uh, Citizen Bitcoin likes to say. So let's hit a couple of fundamental things that are wrong with this idea straight out the gate and why. The biggest, most important and glaring fallacy that this stems from is that consumption is the root of prosperity. It is not and cannot be by its nature. If you have seeds and you eat them all, your consumption will be really high, but you have absolutely nothing to eat next year. If you have seeds and you save them and then plant them next year, then you likely have a source of food ongoing for decades if you can keep that up, if you can continuously save for the future. Now, I might repeat this a few times over the course of this show, so bear with me. Savings is the sole source of economic prosperity and growth. Full stop. That's it. Savings is 100% of real economic growth, and this is fundamental to what savings means. If there is a metric, let's say GDP, it says we grew a whole lot and became much, much wealthier because of a bunch of debt, consumption, and no savings, well, then either the metric is complete crap 
or it entirely fails to account for where the cost has been moved to. Savings necessitates a lowering of consumption. There's a great, great piece. Um, it's like a, it's a cartoon, but it's like brilliant, simple economics of how an economy grows and why it doesn't. And it starts with the most fundamental concept. You've got two people and they catch fish. They catch a fish or two fish every day and they eat them. If, if they produce together between them four fish and they eat four fish, their consumption is as high as it can be. And basically there can be no growth because they're eating exactly the amount of resources that they create. However, if one of them is able to save half their fish, they only eat one fish a day, they basically you know, go a little bit hungrier or stress themselves for three or four weeks to get you know, 20 fish or whatever it is in savings so that they can take a week off, they can take two weeks off to basically work on a different project on improving the way that they actually fish. The, the prime example is instead of fishing with a pole and a line, you fish with a net. Well, that person must have savings so that they can stop fishing for a few days in order to make the net. Because they must explicitly make the net at the cost of going out and fishing. But after they spend a week eating their saved fish and making themselves a net, then they can go back out and suddenly they can catch 10 fish a day. That is it. That is economic prosperity. That is growth, period. All of it is in some form or fashion that happening. And understand, the savings itself is the actual fish. If you add money into this equation, it will only confuse the reality of what's happening because you confuse the money as a consumable resource. It is not. You do not eat the money. You cannot print a whole bunch of shit on a piece of paper and then be wealthier. So even if this person borrows from the other fishermen, what they have to borrow is the fish. They have to borrow something to eat. They can't borrow the person's promise to uh, catch a whole bunch more fish next month so that they can take off and eat and survive today to make a fishing net. They need actual, real fish. They need food to actually do this. The fish must exist as savings somewhere. And you can always break down the, the economic concept down to one person or two people. Always. The more people you get involved, 100,000, a million people, all it does is conflate the reality of what's going on. Money conflates it even more. Money is the ultimate tool for um, transmitting that value because of how confusing and complex and multifaceted a group of a million people can be and how insanely massive that network is, the number of connections and interactions. So because it is inherently indescribable it is inherently impossible to figure out what's going on in something so complex you have something like money that is supposed to translate the information from each of the individual participants to the whole but what it is trying to translate is the fundamental reality of how many fish there are how many people there are and how much time anyone can stop doing their productive task to try to do the task of innovating and growing uh, growing the amount of production and capital that they can accumulate. 
Yet Keynesianism, our dominant economic thought, completely ignores this. The leading economic thought literally believes that you can create debt out of thin air and that this will boost the economy. Like I said, you can always understand these principles by taking it down to one person or two people. I cannot build a house today with the trees that I plan to cut down tomorrow. Someone, somewhere, had to already cut down the trees, which means the debt must coordinate with some savings somewhere in the economy. If we have 10 times as much debt as we have savings, it means that we have 90% of the projects that we are working on we do not have the resources to complete. This is how you get a massive boom and bust debt cycle. You issue more debt than exist as savings. Everybody thinks we're all rich and we start 10 times as many projects as we actually have the resources to start. Everybody makes great plans and for 10 years everything's running smooth and then we get kind of a third away through all these huge projects and it's like, well, crap, prices are going up and everything, we're running out of stuff. Oh, shucks, we just issued this debt from nothing and there was no savings and the interest rates weren't real. They were all lies based on a manipulated, centralized institution that just dictates interest rates arbitrarily. And suddenly, we have to cancel all of the projects. Suddenly, nobody can afford any of them. And we go into the bust. I could talk at length about this, but that's not what this show is about. I do have a episode, in fact, on the boom-bust cycle, if you want to hear that one out. I think I have a really good analogy with the help of my brother, actually. It's kind of his core concept idea that I expanded on. It's a really fun analogy with cars in a bank and everybody trading the keys to the cars and how that, how the issuance of additional keys when there actually aren't cars in the bank could spur economic growth for a pretty significant period of time until we reach that point where everybody's plans come to fruition and start taking the cars out of the bank. But it's a really fun analogy, and I think it kind of explains the idea pretty, pretty well. That's guys take 18, and I'll have it in the show notes. Um, but that's one of the main concepts, is that savings, hoarding is just a, hoarding is just a stupid word. It's absolutely meaningless. It has no economic meaning whatsoever. It's just how you make savings sound like a negative thing. Truly. It's not an economic term. It is a political term. There's absolutely no difference between someone hoarding $100 and someone saving $100 other than the fact that from a political standpoint, they want you to dislike the former and you're okay with the latter. That's it. But the first and most important economic concept is that savings is the source of all growth. Without savings, there is no growth. And if, even if you want to look at it from the concept of, oh, someone has to be able to take out a loan, well, still, loans follow savings. You cannot loan somebody something that doesn't exist. And the only meaningful thing that people can use to create growth are real resources, not money. If you want someone to be able to get out a loan, you must have savings. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second is that people consume. Period. People must consume. There is no world where people don't consume. 
It's the one thing we do not need to incentivize. Go to the poorest country in the world and you know what you'll find? No savings, but people still consume. Consumption is the only given. Savings, the source of economic prosperity and growth, is the thing that actually needs a little bit of incentive. It will naturally happen if you have a vehicle that allows savings, if you have sound money. Otherwise, if you destroy your money, if you inflate your money away, if you manipulate the interest rates and incentivize debt at the explicit cost of savings and you incentivize consumption at the explicit cost of savings, well, then you will destroy your society. Never in the history of the world has a society collapsed because of too much savings or too sound of a money. Never. And the only reason to be wealthy, the only reason to have a lot of money, is so that you can consume. You can't have a million dollars and have a million dollar house with that million dollars. You must have one or the other. It costs a million dollars to get the million dollar house. So if you're hoarding money to be rich and you're explicitly not buying the million dollar house, it means you're being homeless with a million dollars so that you can be rich. Obviously, living like a pauper and never consuming anything so that you can be rich is ridiculous. To get the fruits of that past labor, of the value that you have created in the past, which is the very reason that you save money to begin with, one must spend the money. We simply don't need to incentivize consumption. Consumption is the source and the only way to sustain life. And it's doubly absurd to think that a lack of consumption is somehow our problem. We have an economy that is literally leveraged like 40 or 50 to 1 because of how much we have overconsumed. Like 60 or 70% of the population does not have any savings to speak of. They literally cannot make it a single paycheck or I mean a single paycheck period without a job. They will just be completely out of money. We could stand to incentivize a little bit of savings. In fact, we could overly incentivize hoarding for 10 years, and it would probably just get us back to zero. You know, think of the consumption lines around, like, our whole economy is just consume, 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 go into debt, get a credit card, waste everything, don't think about it, be as frivolous as possible, instant gratification. That, we don't need any of that. We don't need that anymore. There is no need to incentivize that any harder. We are 100% good on consumption and debt. We did it. Congratulations. How'd it work out? Not so great. Well, maybe we should get a little bit of savings in there too. If we traded those mile-long lines outside of the stores on Black Friday and just, you know, we traded, we cut that line in half and traded it for like a good $2,000 or $3,000 in savings across the average person in the economy, that's a pretty good trade-off. So that's number two. We don't need to incentivize consumption. Consumption is a given. And disincentivizing savings is how you destroy an economy. So number one again, just to sum up, savings is the source of all prosperity. It is a necessity before loans can even exist because the only thing that is meaningfully loaned are the resources that one acquires with money. And number two, no one needs to incentivize consumption. 
We do consumption just fine without being told that we should buy nice things and eat good food and want a big house or get the coolest smartphone. Thinking that we need to encourage people to want stuff is ridiculous. But incentivizing savings is really important because of number one, it's the source of all prosperity and growth. And two, if we don't have it, things can get really, really bad really, really fast. You know, if like a hurricane hits or maybe a pandemic and now we don't have any runway, we have a good solid four hours of saved capital before the lockdown throws us all into chaos and knocks out 40% of small business, shuts them down in a mere month and puts 4 million people out of a job because no one has any capital anywhere and everybody was already in debt up to their eyeballs. Wouldn't it have been interesting to have had what one might call a buffer, something like savings for when things went wrong. And that brings us to number three. And this is a contradiction in the very question itself if you understand why it is that the value of money rises. And we're talking about now in Bitcoin, it's a little bit different at this stage because we're still undergoing monetization. So there's tons of capital from outside the economy coming inside the economy but just for the example of we are on a sound money standard we have deflationary money and the value of the money increases over time why is that what causes that and does that mean that people will hoard it um, and never spend it and therefore nobody will have any goods we'll all be in poverty and everything will stagnate blah 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 this is to completely fail to understand why the value of money would go up Poverty and stagnation makes the value of money fall. It is only because of growth that deflationary money increases in value. If the economy stagnates or becomes more poor, the value of money falls. Now, something that's really important to understand about this is an idea that I just brought up a couple of minutes ago, is that money is not a consumable good. You do not eat money. You do not wear money. You do not live inside your money. It is useful for nothing. Nobody does any of those things with money unless they're just trying to be cute or they're really, really stupid. Money is a proxy for resources. It is an abstraction of actual things that people need and want. So what is actually happening when someone saves money, when someone hoards money from the rest of the economy, is that they are creating resources into the economy and not taking resources back out of the economy. They are instead holding money as a placeholder for the things they have produced in the past. My favorite example is the sandwiches. If someone is making a dollar off of every single sandwich that they make, and they make a million sandwiches, well, then that person has hoarded a million dollars worth of value by explicitly producing a million sandwiches into the economy, feeding a million other people and asking for nothing in return. It is literally the opposite, the perfect opposite of depriving other people of resources. Saving money is depriving yourself of consumption. If you have a million dollars, you are explicitly doing so at the cost 
or at the opportunity cost of not buying a million dollar house, which means there is one extra million dollar house on the market. And if the value, the value of the money goes up in relation to the additional resources, the additional productivity and the homes left on the market, it does so at exactly the proportion of those who have saved money off the market. In other words, someone who is saving money, someone who is hoarding money, is not at all keeping money out of the hands of other people. What it does is it lowers the relative prices of all the goods so that people need less money to get the goods. The easiest and simplest way, I think, to articulate this is that if the value of money goes up, that means that goods and resources got more affordable. It is the exact opposite of the supposed problem, that people can't afford things because evil saver took all the money away. The reality is what they've actually done is they have put, let's say, let's say they save a million dollars, right? They take a million dollars, they take, the evil, evil saver takes a million dollars out of the economy. What they actually did is they put a million dollars worth of resources into the economy and stopped consuming it themselves. So someone who was bidding up the prices, making things more unaffordable and more difficult to attain, and taking supply off the market has stopped doing so. They have explicitly turned it over to producing and increasing the supply of those goods, and they have held just money something that nobody can eat, live in, or breathe, or clothe themselves with, nothing more than a promise for them to then consume maybe sometime in the future. And thus the price of those goods fall. The saver explicitly adds additional supply, is not consuming, and therefore not bidding up the prices. And this is the very mechanism, greater supply and less consumption of that supply, which pushes the prices down, which is the act of making the money more valuable. So now let's reword our hoarding scenario. Again, the original goes something like this. Well, won't people just hoard money that other people need because its value is going to go up and this will make everybody poor and cause economic stagnation? So let's flip each one of those pieces for what it means for resources. It means that people will stop consuming resources, they will produce more goods into the economy, and because of their savings, not consuming it, those goods will become more affordable in terms of money. And this will cause poverty and economic stagnation. The very basis of this idea is that having more resources, fewer people competing for those resources, and lower prices will make it harder for people to obtain them. What it means for the value of money to go up is that shit got cheaper. So how on earth did this idea actually get perpetuated? Where did this come from? That deflation is bad. That's because it is bad in very specific circumstances created by Keynesian policies that fail to recognize this very truth. And I'm going to go get something to drink while we hit our sponsor really fast, and we're going to talk about those things. 
Okay, so the first reason why, the reason deflation is bad became a thing is because of debt deflation, is because of deflation in the credit markets. And this is not the consequence of sound money. This is the consequence of too much debt turning back into a reasonable amount of debt. That is what, that is what a lot of people conflate with the quote-unquote deflationary problem. And what's happening, particularly in our system, when we have fractional reserve banking and we have literal printing of loans into existence and the manipulation of interest rates and the Federal Reserve printing money and issuing loans, all this great stuff, you know, monetizing the actual national debt directly. Um, what you have in that situation is the creation of additional money as debt that is unsustainable. Back to the I can't build a house today with the promise to cut down trees for myself tomorrow. Um, there are no, if I didn't cut down any trees already, can't start the house, period. Money is able to cover up that simple truth. It is, I am able to take out money and the fact that other people cut down trees already. Uh, I am able to then borrow theirs. And it looks like there's enough resources to pay everybody back, but there's not. Because that money didn't come from actual savings somewhere, that money came from a printing machine. Or just a computer these days where somebody just punch in, punches in a whole bunch of points. So if we over-indebt ourselves, if we take on massive amounts of debt that we cannot afford, which is exactly what happens when you incentivize consumption by lowering the interest rate, you get people to take out debts that the economy actually cannot sustain at an artificially low price. You know, you would sell a whole lot more bread if you forced the price down to a penny. Yeah, everybody would go by and bread would be empty on the shelves. So that's what you get. I mean, I mean, that's, that's literally the goal. They get the exact result that they want. People go into debt way more than they would otherwise. And, uh, and then you pay the consequences a few years later. What happens is all of the people who could not afford the debt or the people who started the projects that down the line cannot be finished because we only had one house's worth one house worth of wood cut down and we gave out loans for five people to start houses well everybody builds a fifth of a house and everything looks great and lots of people are employed and then four of the projects have to get canceled because there was only one house worth of trees that's essentially what we have happen we take on too much debt because the government has artificially lowered the price to quote-unquote incentivize consumption. This has created the false impression of an economic boom because everybody starts projects that nobody can actually finish. And then when it turns out that, again, nobody can actually, a lot of the people can't actually finish the projects and people get fired and debts get defaulted on, there is deflation. But that is not natural deflation. That is credit deflation. That is literal deletion of the money supply. Because again, in our stupid backward system, we create loans out of thin air. We create loans as new money in the economy. So when someone defaults on the loan, if somebody gets a $100,000 loan, they put $100,000 into the economy. What that happens? What happens is it gets put into another bank. Then they use that as a portion, as their little, little tiny little portion of reserves to print another $100,000 for somebody else. So rather than being independent of each other and have buffers of savings between 
each other's economic positions, what we have is we have dependency. We have tethers of, of catastrophe between each other's economic activity, where the person who actually created the money, which was the basis of the loan that created uh, the business that I work for, which was their ability to take out a loan to pay me and my, and, and my income, which was in the basis of the loan for me to take out a mortgage to buy a house. Now, if the first person defaults, the whole line of people collapses. However, if just one person in that lineup had savings, it would stop the dominoes. But we've created a situation artificially through government policy and monetary manipulation to eliminate everybody with savings. And the deflation that happens as a result of all the credit being wiped out specifically destroys all of the economic activity that was reliant on the continuation of that credit. So if you've created an economy that literally cannot pay off last year's debt without the issuance of new debt at a lower price, yeah, deflation is horrible because it means you have to stop all of the projects that you could never afford to begin with. But the problem is not deflation. The deflation is the remedy. Back to an analogy I've used in the past is when you manipulate prices and you manipulate people's desire, their behavior in response to those prices to go into debt, is it's like cooking the books, right? And I use the analogy of we're all on a plane and prices are like your indicators. They're like your altimeter. So if we go into too much debt, what happen is, happens is our altimeter, the prices will correct and say you're in too much debt. Or in the context of the altimeter is it will say you are, defin you are flying towards the ground. You should pull up. The act of deflation in that cycle of defaulting on the bad loans, the, uh, the less valuable projects that we can't actually complete, or basically wiping the economy out of crappy banks that are completely underfunded, or businesses that haven't turned a profit in 10 years, that is the act of pulling the plane up to fix the altimeter. Those are the very actions needed to save the economy from the imbalance, from the plummeting to our deaths. What the government does by manipulating the prices is they break the glass on the front of the altimeter and they push the, the gauge back to level so that it looks like everything's fine. And then they serve drinks to everybody on the plane to make sure everybody's drunk and nobody thinks about it too hard. Then we end up flying even steeper down and the altimeter keeps getting pushed back up and everything gets worse and worse and now we're all leaning forward and now we're like redesigning the plane to have it so everybody walks up and down and the aisle's made into a set of stairs because we've been flying straight down for so long that we, that's just the way things are. So the longer this goes on and the more and more the government manipulates it and keeps everybody drunk and prevents the actual correction from happening, the deflation gets worse and worse because the problem, the real problem, is worse and worse. So, of course, the remedy, the correction, is more and more painful. But none of this has anything to do with natural deflation of a sound money economy. If you want to think about just natural deflation, electronics. 
Electronics are the best example of what it looks like for your money to be worth more every year. The smartphone you have today is hundreds of times more powerful and more useful than it was than the smartphone you had 10 years ago. That is natural deflation. The products got better. The production got easier and lower cost as time went on. And therefore, you could produce higher valuable, uh, higher value and higher quality items and lower the prices very quickly. If something you can get a like the beefiest computer imaginable from like 2013 for like a few hundred bucks today, that is huge amounts of deflation. And that is a natural deflation because the quality of the product and the the ability for information technology to accelerate and compound on the ability to produce both the speed and amount of the good, i.e. smartphones, computers, gadgetry, whatever the hell, so far outpaces the supply of the money that its price in money terms goes down every year consistently. So this is really important to understand. If natural deflation for the economy is actually bad and causes stagnation and causes no one to invest and causes poverty, why has the tech industry been the fastest growing, fastest innovating, and highest opportunity market for like 30 years running? Seriously, it has experienced nothing but huge amounts of deflation. And let's take it one further. Look at the Bitcoin economy. If there was ever a prime example of a money that skyrocketed in price and incentivized people to save and to hodl it as tightly as they possibly can, and now we get to see what the consequences of that are, Bitcoin would be it. There is literally no other time in the history of the world in which you have had an asset that has gone up so far so, so much and so quickly over a 12 period, uh, a 12 year period, as Bitcoin has. There is no better live experiment for the consequences of a deflationary money than Bitcoin. And the longer this thing survives, the more obvious those consequences are. So, is the Bitcoin economy stagnant? Does the Bitcoin economy have no investment? Are Bitcoiners having problems with being poor? Are things more difficult to afford using Bitcoin? No, none of this is true. Bitcoin has seen some of the fastest growth of essentially any industry. There is bukus of investment. There is tons of spending. We actually, there's a term for it. It's referred to as the wealth effect. When the price of Bitcoin goes up 6x, people buy all sorts of crap that they suddenly can afford that they never even thought they'd be able to afford before. It creates a huge wave of consumption and that actually pushes the price back down because people are suddenly like, holy shit, my savings are actually worth something. Let's go on vacation. Let's buy that patio we wanted in the back so that we can actually hang out and have friends over and have a good time and spend time with our family. You know what? I'm going to quit my job because I have six months of savings now saved up because Bitcoin has become more valuable I am going to consume and try out a bunch of new different things and experiment. I'm going to go a couple of different places and I'm going to find a better job 
I'm going to find a boss that treats me better. I'm going to do something that is more meaningful to me in my life. Why? If this is such a serious truth about deflationary money that people will hoard it and it will be terrible for the economy, why does Bitcoin, which has an average 100 or 200% growth per year, have none of these problems? Could you find a better experiment in this anywhere? It is made up. It's a fairy tale. Did you know that Keynesian economists actually thought that, like looking back on it, like his, his uh, economic historians, excuse me, look back on the period in the 1870s and 1880s, there was actually thought of that there was this huge depressionary period because there was an enormous amount of price deflation over that period of time. And for a long time, that this was just kind of taught in textbooks and spread around as this period where, for some reason, there was just this really bad economic situation, and there's a whole bunch of stagnancy, and all this bad stuff happened. But it was in the heart of the Industrial Revolution. And when you actually go back and look at it, it the standard of living increase for the average person during that same span of time that they were calling an economic depression was actually one of the greatest standard of living standards of living increase for the average American citizen in the history of the country. Their assumption that because deflation is a pain in the ass when you have lots and lots of debt and you have to take care of that, that deflation itself is just bad, and then took that lens and looked at history and said, oh, well, this must be an economic depression. And it turns out exactly the opposite. The deflation happened not because of a credit bubble, but because we are producing so much more than we were before. We had one of the greatest productivity and growth periods in the history of the country under a sound money standard, and the prices of everything fell accordingly. Everything got more affordable, everybody got wealthier, tons of investment, tons of building, tons of productivity, the exact opposite of what they claim will happen. This, people will hoard money and therefore everything will become stagnant, is the result of crappy economics. Now another key point that I always like to frame things. I love to, I think something that's really important in making sense of some concept like that is to flip it around. What would also be true if it were true that hoarding money would be bad because the prices, because the value of all the money would, uh, you know, just necessarily rise over time? Well, let's say we have inflation and we're inflating that money away instead of letting it Instead of letting the productivity actually be spread across the economy by everybody who is contributing to it, let's just bleed it all into the coffers of the corporatists and the political class who then get to print money, and then they're going to target 2%, 3% inflation. So we believe it would be a problem for everyone to hoard money if its value consistently went up over time. Well, then inflation is raising the value of commodities and actual resources and equities over time. So wouldn't they just hoard those instead? Wouldn't you see people bidding up the price of houses, not even to live in the houses, but simply because having a house is the only way to know 
that you are going to have something worth more in the future? I mean, it might be so crazy that you would have something like a third of the luxury homes around New York completely vacant all the time because rich people would just park money there and it would put enormous upward pressure on the prices of housing, which would be horrific for everyone on a fixed wage. It would mean that buying a house is basically out of reach for anyone in the lower middle class or lower classes and would permanently be so unless they were getting a 10 to 20% raise every single year. If we're worried about them hoarding money for, money for the price of money going up, well, wouldn't they also hoard real resources if the price of real resources goes up? How is it any different? How, you think people will just stop hoarding things? People will stop caring about being bled of their value? Of course not. They're just going to be consumers and they're going to bid up the prices of commodities that they would not even otherwise buy. They're going to lower the supply of those precious resources, of the actual food, water, and shelter that the other people need. They're going to scoop up all the equities and the commodities that the average person needs to survive. And they are going to save less. They are going to produce less. Instead, they will just buy the commodities and hold it. They'll just buy the real estate and wait for some poor person to have to go even deeper into debt to buy it off of them at a 20% profit. They'll bid up the prices. They will take more goods off of the economy. They will save less in money. And it will raise the prices of all of these goods for the average person to make them less affordable. How is this good for people in poverty? How is this good for the economy? And if you believe they're going to hoard money because the value of money goes up over time, they're going to hoard commodities if the value of commodities go up over time. They're going to hoard houses. They're going to hoard the actual things that people need to live and survive and have a higher standard of living rather than money, whose sole purpose is to hold value over time and explicitly allows them to save in something that does not compete with the critical resources of other people in the economy. It's just so backwards, it pains me sometimes. It's just so crazy in some ways to see an idea that is so perfectly opposite of the truth could be so widespread, could be the very basis of every conversation that happens on that political stage. The most dangerous thing are the things that we think we already know, and we are systematically destroying the economy. In in chasing this ridiculous idea. And it gets worse. <laughs> it does. It gets worse. I mean, think about all of the consequences of inflation. So fixed wages, perfect example, is fixed wages in, in an inflationary environment, it means that by default, you get a pay cut every year. That's the default situation of somebody in a fixed wage. If we're talking about an environment that targets inflation, if you have a sound money economy, that person's wage goes up by default every year. So inflation puts the fixed wage earner in a position of weakness and servitude. It means that it's their responsibility. They are the ones that have to go to their employer and ask 
They are the ones in, in a subservient position having to ask for a wage increase every single year or by default, they get paid less. And if inflation is 5%, if inflation is 10%, if you get a 5% raise or a 10% raise, you broke even. You worked another year to get paid the same value you got paid. And you had to ask for it. You had to go to them and beg them to pay you more money. Deflation flips the situation. By default, we would get a raise every year on a fixed income. And that employer must then come to us. They must go to the employee to attempt to negotiate some sort of pay decrease if they can no longer afford it, which the employer does not want. It's incredibly uncomfortable and their employees will get really pissed. It puts the employee in the position of power when it comes to their wage. And that's not to mention that all the power in an employee-employer relationship is directly related to how much savings you have. In the inflationary scenario, you are getting bled dry of savings. You are making absolutely zero interest on your savings. You can have a $10,000 savings account and they're going to pay you a whopping 13 cent in interest rate every month. Whoopie-doo! Don't spend it all in one place. You'll get spoiled. Because you have no incentive to save and because it's going to be worth 5%, 10% less at the end of the year, uh, probably 20% or 30% less when you're talking about trying to buy a house, why not do the opposite? Why not go into deeper debt? Why have savings in the first place? So now everything that is difficult to afford is only affordable with debt. And every incentive we had to actually save has been destroyed. And your wages, rather than being something that you make as a profit, is now simply what you need to pay off all of the bills on the debt that you acquired. It's attached to your standard of living. If you lose your job, you can't pay your mortgage. And there was absolutely no way to buy a house otherwise because the house that should have cost $80,000 was actually $300,000 because all of the wealthy people can't stick their value in a monetary account and save it for the future. Instead, they buy up all the real estate in the area and rent it out. Or even worse, just let it sit empty because there's no other trusted place to park wealth because the very function of money has been destroyed. So now you have to get it on loan. And now you're paying $2,000 a month for a mortgage on a $300,000 house that should have actually cost you $80,000. And you can't lose your job. You are trapped. The whole economy is trapped. Because everybody's running on a hamster wheel just to stay above negative. You got a bad job? You got an asshole boss? No, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You certainly can't quit. You can't stand up for what's right at work. They make you do something a little bit unethical. Why? You can't stand up for your principles. You're not going to be able to put food on the table. You're going to lose your house. You have no buffer. You have no runway to quit your job for a few months if your boss tells you to lie. 
if he decides he's not going to give you a raise this year when you know you deserve it, or when you realize that there's actually no going anywhere in this company and that, you know, none of this is even meaningful to you. Why are you even here? Well, you have no control. You got to pay off your debts. And any savings you thought you had got drained of 10%, 20% every single year to make sure that your runway was as short as possible. I think it's from the use of knowledge in society, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but Hayek has a great quote that always stuck with me. And it's something along the lines that the amount of optionality in positions or in a job or in what someone wants to do in their life is directly proportional to the size of their savings. One of my favorite episodes on this show is Guys Take 36, uh, and it's called Walking Tall. And it's all, about, it's all about that idea and savings and what it means. And it's just really fascinating, too, because it's actually, it was actually spurred by an ad from a bank about having a savings account because they were desperate to get people, well, desperate, like they were trying to get people to save uh, in the bank because the bank needed capital to actually lend out to other people. But it's just a really profound dichotomy to, uh, or an image to compare to our situation in the economy today and how we think about these things to see this from a more sound monetary base and what the culture and what the ideas around these things uh, were in a completely different environment. So I have the link to Guys Take uh, 36 in the show notes as well. I've got one last idea that I want to cover, and I just kind of want to sum this up. But uh, real quick, just a quick thank you to the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. Literally my favorite hardware wallet right now. And swanbitcoin.com. The simplest, the best place to buy Bitcoin, both automatically and just whenever you get a good dip. Shift Crypto with the Bitbox and Swan Bitcoin make this show happen. So thank you to both of our awesome sponsors. But to close this out, thinking about the context that the optionality, the freedom of someone in their life to do what is meaningful to them, to find a better job, to go somewhere else, or just to change the conditions of their life is directly proportional to their savings. An economy that disincentivizes and then calls it hoarding to have savings in money is one that traps people in jobs they hate. One that takes the control and the optionality away from everyone's future, that makes them increasingly dependent on the others around them, that expands debts and tethers us to the debts of our neighbors. So that if any part of the economy crashes, we are all trapped. We are all indebted to them and they are indebted to us and we're all over leveraged and we all collapse at the same time rather than actually having the savings that we would need to help us make, more, make us more independent, to shield us from the bad decisions, the misallocations of capital or the mistakes of others. An economy that disincentivizes savings and incentivizes consumption is one that will remove the supply of real goods of real commodities, of real estate and housing, of equities from the economic pool of resources that will bid the prices of those up 
and will make the rich just hoard those things even though they don't need them or want them because no because money no longer does the single job it arises in the first place to serve in the economy to transmit value safely across time and it leads us to a place where everyone is in debt where the economy is stagnant where wages are stagnant where people fight to catch back up to zero where poverty is on the rise, where we are stuck in a never-ending boom-and-bust cycle, where horrible, corrupt idiots are bailed out and stay rich while they actually destroy resources and are a drain on the economy. And we find ourselves in a system that is so frail and so interconnected and so over-leveraged that a strong gust of wind can create utter catastrophe that reverberates throughout the entire economy. That is where we are, and it is because we decided it was a bad thing for people to hoard money. So the next time you hear someone bring up the idea that deflationary money is terrible because hoarding money is bad for the economy, I hope you'll have at least a slightly better idea of why that is such a perfect and absolute load of bullshit. But whoever brings it up, be nice. I believed it once. I'm sure many people who've listened to this show believed it. It's the default, right? It's what we're taught. It's what we're taught by the very people who now, because we believe something so stupid have the ability to print trillions of dollars for our good and hand it out to their cronies and bail out their corrupt asshole bankers and keep their fraud and their, their wars and their subsidies and all of their crap running and making them the center and most important thing in the world without actually participating in the economy, without actually providing productivity and resources, but instead cooking the books and taking it from our savings. So the other person who says that, know that they probably haven't spent the slightest amount of time really thinking about it. And it's not really their fault. Even though what they believe is pretty stupid. That'll do it for today. Thank you guys for listening. I am officially switching over to the new platform, so bear with me. Fingers crossed it's happening. Probably by the time you get this episode, it will be coming from a new host. So, uh, uh, let's see how it goes. Thanks, guys, for listening. So much more to come. This is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. The future is bright because we have a solution to all of that crap. We are going to get deflationary money, and we are going to have a savings-based economy that is rich and prosperous in a Bitcoin world. Till next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.